Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. A few years ago, I, I was lucky enough to get tickets for the Kate Bush show when she came and toured. About the, She does it about every 30 years. And it was an incredible show with amazing theatrics and light show and people dressed up as fish running around the theatre and, and whatever. And reading the programme on the way home, it was she was talking about how she got, I think it was the lighting director, to take on the show. And she said, you know, he was, you know, the best in the country at this. She loved his work. And she said, I was really nervous and I was asking him. And I, I was so relieved and pleased when he said yes. And I thought, but you're Kate Bush. Of course he said yes. But... Clearly, even after all that relentless success, there's a part of her that doesn't feel that she's guaranteed. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Our mission at Unmistakable Creative is to bring you conversations with insanely interesting people. But that's not all. It's also to help you become one of them. I've never met a person that doesn't have creative ideas, but I've met a lot of people who haven't figured out how to bring them to life. And even if you have very little time, no experience, and no idea where to start with very few of the right skills and systems, you can create and sustain real progress, and I can teach you how to do that. That's one of the reasons we launched Unmistakable Prime, our monthly subscription, and for the first time, we're offering a free two-week trial. Prime is designed to help creatives like you bring their best ideas to life. It includes all of our courses, live office hours twice a month, a book club, webinars, and an amazing community of creatives. Our members have started podcasts, landed new clients, increased their revenue, developed new skills. Every week, we hear new awesome updates from people, and there's no reason that you couldn't be next. For a limited time, you can actually try Prime for free for two weeks. Prices go up on March 18th, so don't wait. Go to prime.unmistakablecreative.com. Join us today. Mark, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. 
Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I've actually known about your work for quite some time. I remember often reading your blog posts on uh, Copyblogger and thinking, yeah, I love everything this guy has to say because it's so practical, which I, I think finding that sort of blend between practicality and creativity is something that uh, a lot of people overlook. Um, but before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking, where were you born and raised and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Huh. Well, actually, I was born just down the road from where I live. Currently, I live in Bristol in the southwest of the UK. And I was, I was born in Bath, but I only lived in this area till I was about three. And then we moved to North Devon, which is even further south and west and rural. Um, so if you can picture a very green and lush and wet and rainy and hilly um, part of the world with some lovely beaches... That's the environment where I grew up. So it was certainly not at the centre of things, even for rural England. Um, and in terms of the impact that had, I guess maybe, I mean, I haven't thought about this really until you asked me, but maybe there's always a sense of, in these out-of-the-way places, that, you know, we're not quite, we're a bit outsiders. We're not quite at the centre of things. We're not the mainstream. Hmm. Um, and actually come to think of it it was a real leap for me to years later make the move to london because i had this idea that i was i was not going to go to london and at some mm -hmm. point i decided you know that's a stupid mental obstacle i've put in my own way um so yeah i think lots of great things about growing up in a rural out of the way place lots of nature mm -hmm. um ted hughes the uk poet laureate lived just down the road from us i never met him but some of his poetry describes, in particularly in a book called Moortown, describes the landscape I grew up in it, almost supernaturally vividly. You know, I remember reading that book and thinking, wow, that's, that's just literally just down the road from us, that whole landscape. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the, he was one of the first poets I read who inspired me to start writing poetry. Wow. So, you know, it's interesting you, you talk about being sort of outside and on the fringes. It, it makes me think of, of uh, Chris Saka, the investor who basically when he started uh, Lowercase Capital, instead of setting up shop in Silicon Valley, he set up shop three and a half hours away from Silicon Valley, despite being oh, really? you know, one of those people. And I remember him saying something along the lines of, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, that that gave him a real edge in terms of how he chose his investments, because he said, you know, if I knew that somebody was willing to drive three hours to come and pitch me to invest in their company, those were going to be huh. very serious people. Um, and it also kind of um, kept him out of the echo chamber of, you know, being in Silicon Valley where everybody was talking about the same things. And, you know, and mm -hmm. so I wonder, do you feel that that gave you an advantage in any way at all in that sense to, you know, enable you to stand out with your own work? I like to think so. <laughs> um yeah, I, I certainly think it gives you a different perspective on things, because maybe if you have grown up at the center of things, it's easy not to see the bubble, whereas I was always very much aware that I was coming in from the outside. Um, another West Country poet, uh, well, Hughes wasn't West Country, but Thomas Hardy was certainly a West Country poet, and he always used to, he, he very much had the outsider's take on things, and apparently even when he was at dinner parties, he would imagine that he was a ghost. And he had died and he had come back to haunt these people. And he said that gave him a very unusual perspective on the conversation, which I think helped his novel writing. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, there's always been that sense of, you know, there is another world to the one that we're looking at and there is an, there's a wider frame 
to this. Yeah. Uh, so you have an unusual situation in that you bridge the gap between poetry, which, you know, poets don't become millionaires or well off and somehow manage to turn it into a very practical and, and, you know, real career that you get paid to do. How did you bridge the gap between those two things? Uh, it took a while. And for a long time, it really felt that my poetry and my career were pulling in opposite directions because, you know, I realized fairly early on that um, in one sense, it's easier for poets because we know that there's no chance of, virtually no chance of making a living doing this. Yeah. Whereas, say you're a fine artist or you're a um, a rock musician, people do get paid for that. And so there's that whole, am I going to make it in that sense? Well, that whole level of agony is taken away from poets. But of course, there's the, what do I do with the rest of life? And how, to me, the question was, how do I live a, a life that is compatible with poetry? Because there are certain mm. things and situations I realized, like academia, turned out not to be compatible um, with writing poetry. So it took it took me a long time and a lot of trial and error and a bit of feedback from some of my coaches and mentors before I came across what I do today, whereas I think I'm not making a career directly from the poetry in terms of earning a living, but because of the kind of coaching I do, the clients I work with, they're all creatives, and they all... Yeah tell me some version of, well, when I saw you were a poet, I realized you would be on my wavelength. Mm. And that obviously, and, and that's, it goes both ways because those are the kind of people I like to coach who have got that imagination, who've got that sensitivity and also ambition for things more than just, you know, external markers of success like money or fame. Yeah. So um, it, it, it's been a winding road, let's put it that way. Well, we'll come back to all of this because I know you've written quite a bit about this in the book. But uh, talk me through the, the sort of first parts of your career th through the winding road in terms of, you know, early jobs, early things, what you learn from those and, and how those have shaped where you've ended up. Hmm. Well, I started off in academia doing an English degree and cut a long story short, didn't get the funding to continue and do a PhD, which closed off that avenue. But I'd realized by then that three years of reading literature and critiquing literature at university, I hardly wrote a thing. And I thought the opposite would be true. I thought all that stimulation would have would have helped. So what, that was one thing I learned is I had to be very careful of getting too caught up in a academic critical mindset. Then I had a job in publishing, um, making, I was, um, I was a CD-ROM producer back in the 90s when this was going to be the future of multimedia and we were basically producing encyclopedias with images and videos and text when this in itself was an amazing thing that you could put all, you know a whole encyclopedia with however many images and hours of film on a cd um and clearly that was a, a dead end in terms of the publishing industry but it did teach me quite a bit i think because i was managing a team about how to get things done, how to get things made, how to get people with different talents and personalities and motivations. And some of them were in the office, some were in different places and, and actually bring that all together. So I guess that was quite a, um, a good practical education. But that didn't last long. Really, what I wanted to do was work with people and write. And at that point, that meant training as a psychotherapist. And this is really where I got going, I feel, because 
working in London, practicing therapy in the 90s, I got all kinds of people come in for, you know, all the things, anxiety, depression, divorce, addictions, um, stopping smoking, losing weight, you name it. And yet there was one category of client who would walk through the door where there was a completely different kind of energy. And this was the novelist with writer's block or the actor in the West End play who had stage fright or the entrepreneur struggling with getting the business off the ground or a film director being stressed out on set. And these were the people where I realized, wow, there's a real energy and connection. And the results that I got, I mean, I, I had clients walking away, not only saying, thank you, you helped me, but this is amazing. I'd never realized this work was possible. And that was, you know, that was a pretty big clue from the universe telling me you need to do more of this. And um, I came to the conclusion that most of them didn't really have a mental health problem in the, you know, in the clinical sense, but they were creative. So they, they put their heart and their soul into their work. And these days, you know, Seth Godin talks about emotional labor. It was certainly that. So I thought, well, rather than, you know, having therapist therapy over the door, why not call this coaching? Because that's maybe a bit more approachable. And it wasn't really the done thing in those days. I mean, coaching is, is much bigger and better known now. Um, but I started calling myself a creative coach and, and, you know, that was really where my coaching practice began was saying, I'm going to dedicate certain time to, to providing a really specialist service for these people. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I think that you, you brought up something that uh, is, in my mind, far too often overlooked when it comes to sort of this personal development, creativity you know, world that we kind of live in. And, and that's the role that mental health plays in, in all of this. Um, because I think that one thing I, I wonder is in creative work becomes such an integral part of who we are. And I think it's very easy for people to mix up their identity and their work and really more than more than that, their self-worth and the results of their work. You know, you find people and I know because I've done it myself where you're, you're measuring your self-worth and your value as a human in you know book sales and podcast downloads and, and things like that. And you know, that almost always is a recipe for disappointment and disaster. Yet, uh, you know, I, I think that it's not that people don't understand any of this stuff intellectually. You know, I think that when something difficult happens to us in our own lives, you know, sort of these platitudes of personal development, you kind of realize that, yes, we know that, of course, we have a choice between, you know, reacting and responding to a crisis. I think that when these things really hit hard in our lives, you kind of realize that so much of this is easier said than done. Um, so one, you know, having been in the position that you're in, I would I'd be curious what you'd have to say about that. But how do you get people to uncouple their sort of self-esteem and their self-worth uh, from the results of their work? Because I, I feel like one common problem I've seen over and over you know, with my own readers is, is, you know, creative confidence or lack of it. Uh, comes up over and over as this big obstacle that stands in the way of them being able to do the things they say they want to do. It's huge, isn't it? Um, I like the quote from the French novelist Balzac, who said, "We what we do as artists is we we serve up a length of our gut, and then the the bourgeoisie get out their knives and forks and start cutting it to pieces." And you know the thing about that, it's that visceral feeling that we identify with our work on a level that however so supposedly self-aware or mature we are, it, it is part of us. And I think we have to start from a recognition of, of saying, well, we are coupled to it. You know, very often when people say, oh, well, don't, don't take it so personally if you get rejected or criticized or it doesn't come off. Well, usually the people saying that are not creatives because we do take <laughs> it personally, you know? And yeah. it's said with the best of intentions, but 
And I think on one level, we have to identify and it has to hurt because mm. we've got to have something at stake. If you're not playing full out, if you're not putting yourself into it, what's out there, whether it's on a page or a screen or, or whatever, isn't going to be authentic, isn't going to be the best that you can do. So I guess the bad news is it's always going to hurt to some degree. But mm. I, I like the word you use, decouple, because I think it, it's necessary and possible to do that. And by the way, I, I get this too. Nobody gets let off. I mean, I used to go to a poetry workshop with Mimi Calvati, my uh, poetry mentor, who gives the best feedback I've ever heard from anybody on poetry. And it was funny because she would go around, we'd go around the room and then she would get, critique other people's poems and people would be a little bit resistant or not sure. And I'd be like, isn't it obvious Mimi's right? You know, and there would be other insightful comments from the group as well. But you know, Mimi was really the gold standard. And yet it was amazing. Occasionally Mimi would come around to my poem and suddenly I'd be listening to it and thinking, isn't it incredible? Today Mimi's wrong. Because I would be resisting. I, would, I wouldn't see what was obvious to people outside. So we all have to do it. We all, but I think it's partly just practice. The more you do it, the more you put it out there, the more you get trusted feedback. And I think it's really mm. important to know who is speaking here? What is their perspective? What's their level of expertise? And if you don't have that in your life as a creative, you have to find it. You've got to find somebody who really knows this stuff better than you and can tell you things that are very specific to your discipline. And, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to find the person who's willing to do that and who is also skilled at doing that. Or if they're not so skilled, you've got to be even tougher. Um, but the more you do that, and the, gradually you, you start to build up a picture of how your work seems to other people. You know, and another yeah. good source is the things that everybody says about it. Now, don't necessarily take it at face value. So if everybody critiques you for that thing, then it might still be a strength. But if everybody's saying it, then there's certainly something there. Yeah. So I think doing that and consciously putting it out there. And if it helps, sometimes, you know, you visualize, you might visualize decoupling. You finish a piece of work, you cut that umbilical cord and put it out into the world. Mm -hmm. But it, I think it starts with just recognizing it's, it's normal, it's painful, everybody goes through it. But the more you practice, the more trusted feedback you get, the, the less painful it will get and the more habitual it will feel. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny. Um, I was watching David Letterman's show the other day and he had uh, Shah Rukh Khan who, you know, it's funny because outside of America, everybody knows who Shah Rukh Khan is. Inside of America, they've never heard of him, yet he's more famous, I think, around the world than, you know, Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie. Um, and he, you know, he's basically this cultural icon in India. And I think one of the things that struck me in uh, the interview with Letterman was he said, I'm an incredibly insecure person. I'm like, wait a minute, you're like, you know, legendary yeah. as far as filmmaking goes in India. And you're insecure about your art. And he said all, and he actually said, he's like, he said, I think there's insecurity is something all artists feel about their work. Um, regardless of whatever level of success they've achieved. And in my mind, you know, now that I'm, I'm saying it out loud, I think the benefit of that is that it keeps you humble in a lot of ways to be insecure about your work. Um, it keeps you from resting on your laurels. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing, when you think about feedback, uh, you know, I was just going back through Seth Godin's book, The Practice, uh, 
this morning. And he, you know, sort of makes this distinction between two types of critics, the generous critic and, and, you know, the anonymous one. And, you know, like I get various types of feedback, as you might imagine. And I remember <laughs> one woman wrote this ridiculously long email with all these criticisms of me as a person. And those emails, I, I'm like, great, I'm sure you spent 45 minutes on this and I'm going to take 30 seconds to delete it, if that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I had another listener who, who said, you know, I love your show. And then I was like, okay, I should listen to what this person has to say immediately. And she pointed out something that I was doing, a verbal tick. And I, you know, I remember going back and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, now I hear it every time I say it. Um, mm-hmm. And she was spot on. It was such a minor thing, but it made a world of difference. Uh, and so it was understanding, you know, that the other thing about this is Ryan Holiday says this in Perennial Seller is that, you know, the ability to take harsh, often difficult feedback is critical um, because sometimes, you know, when you get feedback from people who are looking up for, you know, for your best interest, that feedback isn't going to always be what you want to hear. No, it isn't. And this, again, you, this is why you've, you've got to choose it with care. Um, I love that distinction, the, the generous critic, because I think, you know, think back, all my best teachers and mentors have been, they had that quality of generosity. I'm telling you this because I want you to get better. Um, n- not because, because if I don't tell you, then you won't, then you're going to be complacent. It's like, you know, the previous classes that I'd been to before I discovered Mimi's, I went through a cycle. I would go in, I would read some work and people would say, oh, that's good. That's, that was a good line. I really, you know, I was impressed with that. And I'd be sat there thinking, yeah, I know that's a good line. I'm glad you noticed. And it was just boosting my ego. And I got bored and I would leave because I wasn't being challenged and I wasn't growing. And it was one of the very first sessions I had with Mimi she looked at me and she said, I don't get it, Mark. She said, this line is really good and this line is really good. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you noticed. And she said, but why don't you make the rest of the poem as good as that? And I thought, you know, my jaw must have dropped. (laughs) And I saw she was serious. And I hadn't thought about it in those terms before because I'd been sat, you know, was brought into the whole idea of inspiration and talent and, and whatever. And she was saying, no, if you're going to re-, she said, these are two really good lines, but the rest of it is letting it down. And here's your opportunity to work. And that was when I realized I'd found my teacher. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I th- okay. I think that you, you hit the nail on the head um, in terms of talking about this as work, because one thing that, you know, I, I think people do is they often confuse what, you know, is the creative life with the actual creative work. So I always, I had a, a friend at a CrossFit gym that I used to go to, uh, and he would always call me Hank Moody. You know, Hank Moody, I don't know if you know the TV show Californication, but he's this incredibly talented writer who goes around sleeping with hundreds of women in LA, like doing all sorts of drugs. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, listen, man, my life is nowhere as near as interesting as Hank Moody's. And I don't think any writer would tell you that their life is either. Um, but I think that's, that's such a often overlooked distinction in doing this work. It's not cinematic, is it? No, no far from it. My t- life on a daily away. basis is mind-numbing. If they made a movie of my daily routine, it would be, here's Srini sitting at a desk. Wow, this is the most boring movie I've ever seen. No, it isn't. And I guess, you know, when they do the movies, they need to sex it up and they need to, you know, put in all the exciting bits or make them up. Um. And we end up with a distorted image of what the creative life is like. And you can have the most dull, mundane on the the surface um, daily routine, but actually where you're going in your imagination, to me, that is what's exciting. I think it was Flaubert who said, be be regular and orderly in your life like a bourgeois. 
so that you can be violent and original in your imagination. Mm, love that. Well, let's let's get into the ideas in the book. First and foremost, what prompted you to write this book? I mean, I know some of the background on it, having read it, but um, what was it that what was the genesis of this book? It started out as a really long blog post, which I think it was back in 2017. I wrote called 21 Insights from 21 Years as a Creative Coach. When I, I realized that I'd been doing this for, you know, just over two decades. And it felt like quite a nice opportunity to, you know, to celebrate that and to look back and to say, okay, well, what have I learned from, you know, having thousands of conversations with hundreds of people over that 21 years? And I just thought, you know, if I had to boil this down, you know, if I couldn't coach anybody anymore, um, and I just had to say, okay, well, what are the things that you would want people to get? Um, what would those points be? And I thought, okay, let's go for 21. Um, and I think I had candles on the, um, you know, on the blog draft. And it went down really well. And people liked it. And people, some people were, and it was, I don't know, 5,000 words or something ridiculous. And someone said, yeah. look, this is great, man. But, you know, can, can you give it to me as a PDF or a Mobi file or something? And I thought, okay, let's, maybe I can actually do better than that. Maybe I can expand it and extend it. And I, I took time to go away with it and write it up. And I think I changed some of the insights in the process, but that was it. it and deliberately I made this a short book and I wanted mm -hmm. each chapter to be short and I wanted to not over explain. I wanted to give people an insight and then step out of the way and say, okay, you make what you want with that. I didn't want to have yeah. any long how-to processes in it. Well, I don't know whether you'll consider this a compliment or an insult, but when I, I finished reading it, I thought, oh, you know what? I had a, a piece that I was writing, and it turned out to be called 21 Keys to Creative Productivity. I was like, oh, cool. I stole like an artist from Mark. You know? Great, great. Help yourself, sir. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let, let's get into some of the concepts here. I think the first thing that I, I highlighted that really struck me was you said, you know, when we look at what others have achieved, it's tempting to put them on a pedestal. We say they're lucky or naturally talented or well-connected, which is a great way to distract ourselves from uh, our own dreams. Now, the interesting thing about this is that we live in a world right now where what everybody else has achieved is on public display for us to witness. You know, you can't go, yeah. you know, one day on Facebook without hearing about somebody's announcement of the latest thing that they've done. That's so much more amazing than what you've done. Uh, so how do you navigate that dynamic? Because I think that there's this almost natural tendency for artists to put people who they think are ahead of them on a pedestal. Yeah. Well, you see, this is where I have an advantage because I've sat down with hundreds of creatives and, you know, people who are in some cases intimidatingly successful. You know, I've looked at, you know, I've, I know their work already sometimes and they get in touch and we sit down and we talk and I hear some version of the same thing, which is like you were saying the the example earlier on, it's, it's amazing how much insecurity can go with how much ever much talent and achievement. And, after, you know, hundreds of these conversations, I started to think, no, this is really a pattern. I'm, I'm seeing this and I'm in a privileged position to be able to see this because obviously this is not what people share with the world. And so personally, that helped me to relax about it and realize that, you know, everybody suffers, everybody struggles, everybody's got something. 
Um, so what I would say, if somebody's listening to this and you're, you know, you're, you're feeling sick of the relentless tide of good news from other people on social media and, and other outlets, remember that's the outside. That's the end result. That's the good news that they want to share with the world. And of course, we all do when we have some good news. But I will guarantee you that there is suffering behind that facade. And if you don't believe me, then go and pick one of your favorite artists and get a biography and just see what a mess they made of so many areas of their life. Or if if you get any accounts of their working process, often you'll hear about struggle, you'll hear about drafts, you'll hear being ripped up, you'll hear about rejections, you'll hear about falling on their face in auditions. And you start to get a more rounded picture. And then uh-huh you know, map that onto whatever is going out on social media, which in a lot of cases is less impressive than, you know, your favorite artist, whoever that will be. And and you can start to ast- extrapolate from that and, and be a bit more realistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, well, it's funny because I, I read Mariah Carey's biography when it came out earlier this year, and, and it was amazing the amount of just, tr- you know, trauma that she had to endure early on in her life before her career took off. Uh, and, and you just look at that and you're like, wow, this is Mariah Carey who sold millions of albums. This <laughs> right. is not, you know, what a difficult life. Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, I, I was lucky enough to get tickets for the Kate Bush show when she came and toured. About the, She does it about every 30 years. And it was an incredible show with amazing theatrics and light show and people dressed up as fish running around the theater and, and whatever. And reading the program on the way home, it was she was talking about how she got, I think it was the lighting director to, to take on the show. And she said, you know, he was, you know, the best in the country at this. She loved his work. And she said, I was really nervous. And I was asking him and I, I was so relieved and pleased when he said yes. And I thought, but you're Kate Bush. Of course he said yes. But clearly, even after all that relentless success, there's a part of her that doesn't feel that she's guaranteed somebody's going to want to say yes. And I think maybe as well, just touching on what we're talking about, nobody feeling secure. I think maybe by definition, this has to happen because if you're really, you know, the great artists are the ones who are pushing the boundaries. And if you're pushing the boundaries, then wherever you are, you're, you're literally, you're, you're moving into the space where you don't know. If you're secure, then you're not, do you see, you know, you're not pushing yourself. If you know that mm-hmm. it's going to, if it's guaranteed to succeed. So maybe it just goes with the territory. Yeah. So one thing I wonder, you know, you have been, you know, part of this, you know, pre-social media. I mean, you're, you, you kind of predate the, the world we live in today. Um, and I wonder like what you've seen in changes around this sort of issue of, you know, artistic insecurity over time, you know, was it better before we had, you know, these, these, you know, perpetual feedback loops, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there are certain things that are absolutely better. Like I wouldn't be able to do what I did. Yeah. You know, I do now before all of this. Um, and then, yeah. you know, we have the downside of, you know, perpetual anonymous feedback. Uh, yeah. Actually, when, when you say that, it wasn't such a feature in the nineties and, you know, early two thousands, it was, I'm not to say people still had it, but I think there was the feedback loop was slower and there was more distance. You know, you were looking at 
people on a pe- they you know they were more off over there on a pedestal someone who'd been more of an established artist or it would be your direct competitors now i'm i would say i'm definitely seeing a lot more kind of <sighs> burnout around um comparisonitis you know because it is just it's in our pockets if you've got it on your phone and you're looking at it some people look at this stuff in bed can you believe that how are you ever going to get any sleep if you're looking at the <laughs> uh, your competition so to speak or the people who are intimidating and depressing you with their relentless achievement you know that's your sacred space in bed so if one top tip is just don't look at that stuff in bed put the phone somewhere else if if that's uh, preying on you but yeah it's definitely people are much more conscious of you know because you can see follow accounts and subscribe accounts and number of reviews on amazon and goodness knows what it's it's really out there in 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 the numbers in a way that i think it wasn't years ago yeah ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I remember I had a friend who had his first book launch with a publisher and he did relatively well. And I remember he told me, he was like, what are you going to do the day that your book launches? I said, nothing. I'm going to get up. I'm going to write a thousand words and I'm going to go to the beach and surf. And he literally sat in front of his desk on Amazon refreshing rankings. I was like, that's insane. Uh, as mm-hmm. if that would make the book sales go up. You know, I, I I think that to me, I remember I've been working on this piece about the things I would do differently if I had started today. And I, one of my pieces of advice was to ignore all your metrics until there's something worth measuring, uh, because I feel like people obsess over their metrics so much uh, early, early on in the journey when those metrics are effectively meaningless. And funny enough, I still right now, I can tell you probably once every quarter how many downloads each episode has because I have to prepare a report for our investors. But I don't spend a lot of time looking at that stuff. Like my priority is to create, you know, content. And did that come naturally to you or is that a habit you've developed? You know, so it's a combination of, of probably both because, uh, again, I've had the beneficiary like yourself. You've been the beneficiary of, of thousands of, of conversations like this one where each person has kind of taught me something. But I think that the thing that stayed with me forever um, was Seth, the Seth Godin quote who said, you know, anonymous feedback from people who I have absolutely no relationship with will cause me to do nothing but hide. And mm. The more I thought about that and then, you know, talking to Cal Newport, I realized these metrics are in a large way ultimately meaningless because nobody's going to put the number of followers you had on Twitter on your tombstone. Uh, and <laughs> that kind of was just one of those things where you start to see that, wow, who really gives a shit? Like these are all fairly meaningless metrics and yet we assign so much value to them. Uh, and then Naval Ravikov had a really great uh, tweet storm about this. He did this entire podcast, uh, you know, titled how to get rich. But he said, when you obsess over this kind of stuff, you're effectively playing stupid games to collect stupid prizes. And I thought to myself, that is so true. Like, you, you know, last I checked, I can't pay rent with retweets or likes on Facebook. So why would I concern myself with this? Yeah, I think it's so. There's a couple of things come out of this for me. One is I'm fe- I'm suddenly feeling very grateful that I grew up and became an adult in a time before all of this kicked off. You know that I it was a lot easier for me to have quiet time, focused reading a book or writing. You know, and for other people to practice their art without all of this. Um, and so now I think we've got to make a conscious decision to decouple, in your word from all of that to have practices you know i have certain times of the day when my phone is off when it's out of reach when i'm not allowed to look at social media or email um um so it's harder but if you can put those practices in and make those decisions and make a routine of it you start to have large stretches of space where you're free of that stuff during the day Mm -hmm. And to your point about, you know, the Twitter followers not being on the tombstone, I mean, amen to that. And 
the obvious question there is, well, what do you want on your tombstone? And are you working on that today? Because once you're, you're focused on that level of ambition and achievement, that's the thing that's going to bring you the fulfillment. And obviously that's the thing that creates the most resistance and fear, which is, you know, why we're so keen to be distracted from it. But it's a great thing to really look at that big picture. And it doesn't have to be death. It can be you know, we're just recording this at the start of 2021. Well, the first thing I did this week was look ahead to 2022 and say, well, what do I want to have done by then? What mm-hmm. will constitute a successful year for me, creatively, business-wise? Um, and then I looked ahead and did it for Easter, which is an easier horizon to to focus on. I thought, okay, well, what are the milestones I want to reach between now and Easter? Yeah. Um, that means it's going to be a, a successful and a rewarding year for me. I I appreciate the fact that you brought up a, a easier horizon to to get your head around because I, I just finished um, putting the final touches on this piece titled "The First Six Weeks Could You Know Determine How Your Year Turns Out," and um, it made me think about sort of you know the planning that we do obsessively over an entire year, and, and the thing we know from last year is okay. Well, planning an entire year is almost counterproductive because it's inevitable there are going to be things that happen that we can't account for or plan for. Um, so I like the idea of a time horizon that is is very manageable. Uh, one thing that you say in the book is the rise of the creative economy in recent decade means that decades means that creative creativity and innovation are essential sources of competitive advantage and economic prosperity. And I think that this is really interesting because it's so nuanced. Um, you know, we had uh, William Dershowitz here who wrote a book recently called The Death of the Artist, uh, which really kind oh. of... Yeah, you know, yeah, I heard that one. That was really poked a lot of holes in the whole sort of hey, every opportunity we have is available to anybody. Um, uh-huh. Because the the truth is, you know, the internet is not a meritocracy as much as we would like it to be. It, in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, I've always said, you know, it, you could liken it to a developing country where a handful of you know websites get the majority of the traffic. Um, but yet. I think that what you say is also true, regardless of whether we're applying it in the context of building our own creative lives out or applying it to the sake, you know, uh, getting a job working for somebody else. So two questions uh, come from that. One is, is do you have kids? Um, if so, you know, what advice, you know, would you give to them or to parents listening to this around this concept of, of, you know, creativity being a source of ec- economic prosperity? And then, how do you have that coexist with what, you know, William talked about in his book um, and the fact that, you know, this is a life in which nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible? Oh, great questions. So the first one's easy. Yes, I have kids. Um, and in fact, the book is dedicated to my two, my twins and also to my nephew. And I say it in the dedication, this, this is dedicated to Kana, Issa and Archie because you will soon know more about this than, than I will. And, you know, I hope there's a bit of humility in that because, you know, we're at the beginning of a a young century and uh, it's been a wild ride so far and pretty unpredictable. So who knows how things are going to go? But, you know, we do know that AI, automation, outsourcing, et cetera, means that anything that can be done by rote or even by logical data crunching is just getting gobbled up by the technology. And it's it's much, much, you know, the, the thing that is likely to be the best source of competitive advantage in terms of a career or a company is can you do something that no one else can do? And that's very often something that is 
being creative, being original in some way, and also can you outcare the competition, if you like? Have you got that human warmth and empathy and compassion? Because clearly that's something that we value a lot in encountering other people in the marketplace. So I would say anything that you can do to foster those qualities in your children, I'm doing my best with my children, but but also at the end of the day, you know, if they grow up and they want to do something, you know, they want to be a mathematician or a scientist or something that is less obviously creative, I think the most important thing any parent can do is let their child be themselves. Mm. Um, but I would certainly say that, you know, leave the door open for creativity. And, and here are some, you know, in, in the book, I quote some people talking about the job market, for instance, and the, the economy. Um, and this is a theme I know you've written and spoken about a lot, that the, the safe option, the, the supposed um, secure career path is getting a lot less secure these days. Yeah, for sure. So I guess, you know, the, the follow-up to that is, you know, when you think about what William had to say about all of this, you know, how yeah. do you have the two narratives coexist? Well, I think you, you do exactly that. You have the two narratives coexist, and you you don't choose one or the other because they're both true. And I think... William, it was a really great conversation. He had some great, uh, realistic, down-to-earth, grounded, um, hard-won wisdom to share, to say, look, just because you can... So the basic story is, on the optimistic version is, you know, the gatekeepers have gone away. We've got these amazing digital tools and networks. So there's there's nothing to stop you succeeding as a creative in the 21st century. You've You can make work you can share it you can build an audience you can grow a, a business or a career or, or or whatever and william's point which i absolutely agree with is saying well yes you can but so can everyone else yeah and therefore it's hyper competitive and there was one point in that conversation where he said you know the artist used to be insulated from the market you know by the the record company or the publisher or whoever now it's just you and the market and that is tough you know, that's somebody looking at Twitter and seeing how few followers or retweets that they've got or how few downloads of their podcast or how, how few dollars in the bank account. And I think the important thing to do is is to be aware of both of these stories at once and accept that they're both true and that then neither is the whole truth. So yeah. one thing I talked about in, I think it was the first season of my podcast, is I say I used the quote from Dickens where he said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And, you know, I think his point is that, and he was talking about Victorian London, but his point was that any time in history is going to be the best and the worst of times, you know. So one of my projects is I'm translating Chaucer's Geoffrey Chaucer's long poem Troilus and Cressida from 14th century English and one uh you know sometimes I catch myself thinking you know it was easier for him he didn't have any twitter or internet or social media <laughs> or whatever. he could just sit there with his quill pen and his you know on his vellum and yet of course when you read about his life yes he was doing that but he also had a a day job that he had to do and he was living in a gatehouse on the wall of London and on literally, and there was no glass in the windows, and there was an open sewer on the other side. And apparently, when the peasants' revolt charged into London in 1381, they entered through that gate that Chaucer was living above. Now, history doesn't record whether he was there or not. 
when they battered the door down and, you know, fought the men at arms and, and charged into the city. But, you know, I have this image of him sat there, think, rolling his eyes. Can't you see I'm trying to get a poem done here? And, you know, whatever, whatever period in history you're in, there's going to be the downside and there's going to be the upside. There's going to be, yeah, you've got this great opportunity, this great intersection of technology and time and culture. And yes, there's the downside. So I think coming back to your original question, be aware of both narratives. Keep your eyes open. Um, look for the opportunity. Be as positive and as optimistic and as trusting and daring as you can, but also be realistic and really look at the people, you know, look at the people in your field who are succeeding. Pick somebody who is in the same ballpark of what you want to do. Now, I'm not talking about copying their work because, as I know you've written about extensively, <laughs> that doesn't work. But you can yeah. copy their, their business model or their career path in a sense of, well, okay, there are people, for instance, on Patreon making money from, I don't know, podcasting. Or there are people making income from selling books, self-publishing and selling books. You know, it's, it's not a fantasy to say that's happening. And then you learn as much as you can about that particular strategy and how, how viable that is and, and what it costs. And it will cost a lot in terms of time and effort if it's going to be worthwhile. And yeah. make the decision from there. Yeah, I think that the the thing when, when I think about looking at other people, I always say, you know, you want to look at what they've done, not as a, a map for what you want to do, but more of as, as a compass. Um, because so often, you know, like what this causes us to do is overlook context when we treat yeah. everybody else's advice as a map. You know, I think the one I always harp on, and it's not because I'm a podcaster, but, you know, when I hear somebody say, oh, everybody should start a podcast, I'm like, that's kind of stupid because there's nothing everybody should do. Um, yeah. And the problem is that you don't actually look at the context of what allowed somebody to achieve what they have when you just take their advice at face value. Uh, because, you know, like people have, whether we want to admit it or not, you read outliers, it becomes very clear that people have advantages that you can't replicate. Yeah. And Part some of that is personal and some of it's social and some of it is is just the time. I mean, I started my first blog in two thousand and six, which turned out to be a great time to do it. Um, if I was starting out now, I wouldn't start with a blog because you know that that moment has gone. That window of opportunity is not as wide as it as it once was. Well, I, I appreciate the fact that you are also thinking from the, the standpoint of a market, because I remember Dan Kennedy saying, you know, people have this whole follow your passion idea. He said, you know, businesses have to be market driven. He said, you know, I'm passionate about betting on horses, lying in a hammock and eating pizza. And my passion for those things multiplied. Nobody would pay me to do them. Yeah, well, it, and it's difficult. It, we kind of got to square the circle here, haven't we? Because if you're not passionate about something creative, then it isn't going to work. And we know this from the research into intrinsic motivation and versus extrinsic. You know, if you're just doing it for the money or the market opportunity, you will not be as creative as if you were doing it for the hell of it because you love it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, apparently this, this is one of the things I discovered in my master's. There's quite a lot of robust um, psychological research to support that. But of course, it's all very well saying that. But if you're a professional, a creative professional is a bit like an oxymoron. You know, you've yeah. got to be creative. You've got to have the passion and it's got to be professional. So there's got to be some kind of market context or professional context. 
And what you obviously what you want to try and do is find the thing where those two intersect, the thing that you can do that other people, you know, you can see there's enough opportunity, there's enough of a market out there, mm-hmm. but it's but also you you've got enough passion to do it. So it's like you know you I could say YouTube. I look at that. I have no ambition, no interest in doing it. Whereas yeah. podcasting. I'm really passionate about it. I love the the kind of the radio space people go to in their heads when they listen to just audio, where you make your own pictures in your heads and you you, you can be in your imagination with the speaker or the music or, or whatever it is. I, I'm passionate about that in a way that I'm not passionate about video. So, mm-hmm. you know, some people have said, oh, you could do, you know, put the put your podcast on YouTube, you know, re- record the, the video as well. And I said, look, I, I just don't want to do that. I can relate. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because I, it, to me, people had always asked, like, are you passionate about podcasting? And I always say, well, no, not really. Like, I, I didn't start out passionate about it, but the more I did it, the more I found it engaging and it evolved into, a, you know, somewhat of a passion. The funny thing is I don't even listen to podcasts. Um, you know, I much prefer reading books, but I like creating one. <laughs> you know, that's the part that I think that that to me was the thing I figured out was, oh, what I find engaging, what I'm passionate about is using technology to make things, um, to, you know, express my creativity because that's literally my default question with every single tool that I see is, oh, this is interesting. What could I make using this? Okay. I, just to pick up on that last phrase, this is interesting. What, what could I make using this? I think that's a lovely example of, of you starting from curiosity because, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about following your passion and, and intersecting that with the market, but passion rarely you know, knocks on the front door with a big hat, you know, with a sign on it saying, I'm your passion. It usually starts off with a bit of curiosity. It's like, for me, reading poetry and thinking, well, could I do that? You, you know, and it's the same with me, blogging. When I discovered blogging through Seth Godin, you know, I read one of his ebooks back in 2005. And I was just, really, people are publishing online like that and subscribing. And, you know, he was saying that, yeah, and this is a way you can spread your ideas around the world and then opportunities come to you. And my previous business had been me in a telephone ringing companies up, and I didn't want to do that again. So I was just mm-hmm. curious about this whole blogging thing. And then the more I looked into it, the more I saw the opportunity, the more passionate I became about it. So I guess you could say that's an example of the market and the passion kind of intertwining around each other. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about this whole idea of creating assets. You know, you say that by creating an asset that will increase in value over time, you know, this brings you opportunities and makes it easier for you to create more, earn more and achieve more. And I I feel like this message has been echoed in almost damn near every book I've read from even 50 Cent to people like Mariah Carey. Um, And you talk about, uh, I think, six total different kinds of assets, your portfolio of creative work, your intellectual property, your social assets, your artistic reputation, your business assets, and your systemic assets. Can you expand on that? I I mean, in the interest of time, I don't know how brief we can make it, but it's fine if we go over. Um, I don't know know what your schedule is, but um, I just continue that with the I'll try and make it condensed. So Yeah, I thought that was so valuable. Yeah. So this is definitely an insight that came out of the coaching practice because I found myself talking to people. This was a a different type of comparisonitis. This wasn't looking, comparing themselves to other creatives. This was them hearing from their family about cousin George who's doing so well in the law firm or 
um, your sister Sue, who's a doctor, and look, if you know, why can't you be more like them? And it's very often, it's easy to track the progression of a career like that, or if you're climbing the corporate ladder. It's easy to see if you're being promoted, you're getting a raise, you've got a better office, you've got a fancier job description, you're getting, you know, there's a lot of positive reinforcement to let you know you're making progress. And meanwhile, says the creative, sat there in their, you know, rented room looking at the laptop, what have I got to show for it, you know? And there's nobody there, there's no very few external markers to say, yeah, now you are a senior author or you're, a, a, <laughs> you're an intermediate cello player or, or whatever. And yet the thing that, I, so I thought about this, I thought, well, w- what is the difference between the creative who has really made progress to the point where things get that bit easier, where they're making more money, where opportunity is there for them, where they're connecting with an audience. And it struck me that there is... <sighs> I started with creative work. If you've got a portfolio of great work, that can generate money just purely from the back catalog sales in some cases. Yeah. But also it can generate opportunity. People say, oh, you you were in X show or you've got a credit on X movie. Um, you've worked with these other clients. You can probably do a great job for me. There's also the intellectual property aspect of that. And it struck me that these are assets in the sense of so an asset in the you know the traditional accounting sense is something that you you buy or you obtain or you create in order to generate ongoing value so you might buy a property and then rent it out you might buy a a stock portfolio and then hopefully if the market goes the right way you get revenue back from it and it's not a replacement for that but it struck me that if we think about our strategy for progressing our career and also finding fulfillment in terms of creating assets. If you create great work, if you are smart about how you develop the intellectual property of that, you can also create social assets like a brand or a network or a website or a mailing list or even those social media followings. Um, you can you may have an artistic reputation within your field. You may be known as the person who does great work. You know, you may not be known so well in the general public, but people in your industry know you. And you might have business assets as well. You might have a, a product, you might have a, a company, you might have a team that you've developed. And also the biggest asset of all as a creative is you. You are the one you're the you're the goose that can produce the golden eggs all the learning all the knowledge all the skills all the experience even the suffering that you have gone through that makes you uniquely you and that has shaped your talent and your ability to the point where you can now do things you couldn't do 10 years ago even five years ago and this is why lifelong learning and personal development i think is so important for a creative and so Coming back to your original question, I always encourage clients to focus on what assets are you going to create that will put you on the map in your industry, in your artistic field, and also what you know, this is the kind of thing that's going to want to be reflected on your tombstone. You're the person who wrote X or who produced Y. You know, and again, this is where the market and the passion come together because in order to create something that is going to be truly valuable and original 
on some level you've you're you're going to be passionate about that it's going to express some deep truth about who you are as a person and the bad news is there's no guarantee so i mean we've all mm-hmm. got plenty of you know manuscripts that didn't f- work or products that flopped or <laughs> audition yep. you know ideas for careers that that never worked out and the other thing is you, you know there's there's on any given day there's no external uh, reinforcement to tell you to do that i mean you know this there was the first day of writing the book there's nobody there to say go on go for it you should get down to <laughs> well done you did the first page i mean when you've published hopefully there are people who say isn't it great you wrote a book that's fantastic but yeah you've got to push on in that space where there are no guarantees and there's no external reinforcement but you've got a hunch i'm onto something here and i want to do it so probably you're going to have a few prototypes and failures in inverted commas before you develop your first real asset but where you want to get to is a point where you've got a decent back catalogue, a good portfolio, a good network, an audience, a brand or a reputation. And maybe you're starting to find licensing and, and other ways of exploiting the intellectual property. And at that point, you know, you get up in the morning, you're a bit closer to Kate Bush, who, you know, because she is who she is and she's done what she has done, opportunity comes to her and things get easier. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because, um, you know, people always ask me about the benefits of, of writing a book. And I think the the funny thing, and, and even having done this, you know, like I, for years, like, oh, I'm unemployable. But I realize from having done the projects that I've done, having built the show that I've done, if I went now back to a corporate role, I would be able to bring so much more value that I couldn't when I was younger. But the thing that I think struck me most, you know, I, I realized there's, you know, a very high possibility that I'll never get to do another book with a publisher again. But the greatest value that came from that process was to be able to look at a very, very ambiguous idea, work on it for a really long time and transform it into a reality. And I thought, well, that's a skill you can apply to damn near anything. So, you, I mean, it's funny because, you know, you just gave me an idea for another blog post about the, you know, two types of assets that creatives should have tangible and intangible. And mm. I think that intangible assets are the ones that we tend to really undervalue, uh, yeah. You know, I was talking to this woman yesterday uh, who was in one of our, our, our uh, unmistakable prime coaching program and turned out that she was the brand manager for the American Marketing Association. And I was like, do you have any idea how valuable your knowledge is? Um, I was like, wait a minute, seriously? I was like, you should be teaching courses for us. Uh, you know, I mean, literally, and the thing is we tend to overlook that so often. We overlook yeah. the intangible yeah. assets because we focus so much on the tangible. Yeah, absolutely. And I look, overlooked my poetry for years. I remember talking to Peleg Top, my coach, one day, and he was going, why don't you talk about your poetry more? And I was like, well, you know, most people aren't really interested in poetry. And he, and he looked at me. He said, you don't want most people as your clients, do you? <laughs> he said, what do your clients think? I said, oh, they think it's cool because, you know, it tells them I'm on the same wavelength as them and we're going to relate. And, you know, I'm not going to be that kind of corporate coach. And he said, well, so what's the problem? You know, and the penny dropped for me there. This was something that had been under my nose for years that, um, you know, I'd overlooked because it was just what I do. So if you're listening to this, you know, maybe do a bit of an inventory. What what do you have in terms of different types of work that you've done, even stuff that you wouldn't, you haven't necessarily shared with the world? Um, network audience reputation you know who knows your name and has good associations with it there may well be stuff in there 
that you can now start to leverage in your career. Yeah. Well, let's finish here. I want to talk about this one last piece, which is uh, the whole idea of the inner critic, because I think that, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things I'd seen over and over from people in our own audience, my readers, was this fear and, and lack of creative confidence. And you say your inner critic is your own critical faculty, which is essential to producing great work. It's the part of you that can appraise a piece of work and tell you what works and what doesn't and why. Now, I think that, you know, working with your inner critic is, is a lifelong battle for any creative, uh, you mm-hmm. know, understanding when to take it seriously and when to think it's, you know, realize it's full of shit. How do you, how do you figure out those two? Like when, you, how do you figure out when to listen and when not to? This is something else I learned from Mimi. In fact, credit where credit's due, Mimi Calvati, my poetry tutor, she's the one who, who, where I picked up that phrase, critical faculty. She once taught us a whole year-long course on using your critical faculty as part of your creative process. And she said one day, she said, you know, the art of this is to have an inner critic who's got really, really high standards, but who's also incredibly nice and generous and cares about you. And really, that's that's actually herself she's describing there. Um, and so it's, if you have a generous critic in your life, model them. Use that as a way of thinking about your work. Ask, you know, what would so-and-so say about this work? Because usually they would say it in a kinder tone of voice than your habitual critic would say. Um, if you don't have that, then then just you know, use some imagination. But where we want to get to is just appreciate what your critic gives you. And I'm not talking about when it tells you that, you know, you're a useless piece of whatever and you're, you know, messing up your life. <laughs> not about when you turn it on yourself. So the analogy I use is like a sushi chef in a, a restaurant in Japan. And the knife is incredibly sharp. You know, these knives are so sharp, you know, they'll take your finger off as, as soon as you brush against them. And what the chef does is he'll, and it nearly always is a he for various reasons in Japan, um, he uses that very, very mindfully and carefully in his work. And then he puts it on the wall or he puts it in the block and he leaves it at work and he goes home he doesn't go and stick it in his back pocket or in his bag and then saunter down the street he doesn't start waving it about to gesture with when he's having a drink with friends or dinner with his family and yet that's effectively what we do as creatives you know we've got the critic with us constantly it's like the knife is out all the time and really you only need it when it's time to focus on the work and at that point, it becomes incredibly valuable. And, you know, again, this is one thing I've noticed about every creative I've coached who's working at a high level has a super sharp critic. Because it's necessary. We need that level of discernment and awareness about our own work in order to produce something good. Because we only have to look on certain parts of the internet to see all the mediocre stuff that is produced by people who don't have a very active inner critic. So this is why I say we should be grateful for the critic, but we should use it very wisely and according to context. Hmm. I love that. Wow. Um, well, this has been fantastic. So I have one final question, which I know you've heard me ask, uh, and it's how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? When I hear that question i think of a poem by general manley hopkins where he starts he starts off talking about a kingfisher but then he extends it to all creatures and i think he includes humans in this as well and he says each each one of themselves 
and he uses self, selving as a verb here. You know, they, they do themselves. And he says, what I do is me, for this I came. And it's that sense of when you look at animals, birds in the natural world, or when you look at somebody who's totally involved and present in their work, they're totally themselves. And I think we all have moments like this. And that's when we're unmistakable. That's when we're doing the thing that only we can do. And I would say, and you feel it, you know, I think all of us as creatives, at some point, we we surprise ourselves. We start writing and then suddenly we realize the page is covered and we've gone somewhere in our imagination we didn't expect. Or, I don't know, we're dancing and somehow there's an effortless quality and we've done the routine in a way that we've never done it before. So, and we feel that in our bones. And so I would say if you're listening to this, watch out for those moments where you surprise yourself, where you, you kind of get out of your own way on one level and in another level you, you step into your, your skin as if for the first time. And pay attention to them because they're clues for when you're being unmistakable. Amazing. Wow. Um, well, I have enjoyed our conversation so much and learned so much from you. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, the book, and everything else that you're up to? So my website for creatives is lateralaction.com. And you can find out about uh, my podcast, the 21st Century Creative, is there. Uh, all my books are there, including the, the one we've been talking about today, which is 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. And you can also find out about my coaching service there. So I, I work with high-achieving creatives who are mid-career onwards, who really want to step things up and make uh, big changes. So if that sounds like you, go along to the coaching session of, section of the site, and I have a set of questions for you to answer, um, and then we can talk. Amazing. Um, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.